Please turn back to page 1105, and uh, as you find it, those who do actually look at the titles of sermons, which may be few, you may be, and anyone who looked at the title of sermons and knew anything about the preacher tonight might be surprised. The title is www.christians. That from a vicar who only a few years ago, when he left his Bible behind at Swanwick Conference Centre, asked the office to phone Swanwick, could they fax my Bible back to me? It shows exactly how much I knew about technology. Uh, well, I've learned a little since then. Uh, some of you do know, at least you may know, that uh, there has been a computer crime named after me. And the first time that Martin and I went to Japan on ministry, I, I opened up a paper, the Tokyo Times, the English paper in Tokyo, and the headline which hit me like a shot, the crime of hacking grows daily. I wondered how they knew I was there. That was a starter. Well, the reason I've chosen that is that tonight is what you call a one-off series. Can you have a one-off series? Probably not. But it's a one-off anyway uh, tonight. And a very special one because of Neil and Lucy. And I'm delighted to be here tonight and delighted to be involved because I've sort of been around in all that's been happening. I always tell Neil that whether I receive his uh, uh, prayer letter by the ordinary snail mail or by email, it's one of the prayer letters that actually I enjoy reading. I read lots of prayer letters out of good duty and solidly, but Neil's letters are exciting. So if you haven't got a prayer letter, make sure you get one. So I'm delighted to be here to this recommissioning of Neil and Lucy. And so it struck me as being a, a good time to look at this passage about the church at Antioch, where it says, you see, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 26, verse 26. So wouldn't you imagine, had there been computers there, there would have been www.christians, not UK probably, but something else, at Antioch. It is in fact one of only three occasions in the New Testament when the word Christian comes. Interesting word, it comes twice else, it comes in Acts, when Agrippa very sarcastically says to Paul, are you trying to make me a Christian? To which the answer was yes, uh, but he was saying it with heavy sarcasm. And it comes in 1 Peter when it talks about suffering as a Christian, that's all you get. Now, why did they coin this word in Antioch? Actually, I'm told that the Greek word there, they were called Christians, could well have been they opened a bank account under the name of Christians. So, you see, it could well have been a www.christians. And why they did it was that they were actually trying to find a name that fitted the bill. For they knew about Jews, there were plenty of them around. And they knew about Gentiles, there were plenty of them around, even more. But who were these people, Jews and Gentiles? Well, they were always talking about Christus. They were always talking about Christ. So the nickname came. Christ, people. I wonder if I I dare ask, supposing somebody were trying to concoct a name for the church of today, would they really know by what we say that we're always talking about Jesus? That we are Jesus people? Christians? Well, sometimes, as you know, I try to get the word Christian back into circulation. Always I put down, what religion are you? I always put Christian down. Years ago, when I was, the, uh, I was at Lodgemore Hospital as a chaplain, and in those dim and distant days, uh, we always, the, the ministers of the various chaplains always got a list of who would belong to them. There was, an, there was a free church chaplain, there was a Roman Catholic chaplain, and I was the Anglican chaplain, living in my parish. And I arrived one day, and the administrator said to me rather nicely, we have a Nigerian gentleman here, and he doesn't know what he is. He just says he's a Christian. So we had to work out which group we give it to. We thought Church of England was the best one for Christian, don't you agree? I said, well, sometimes. Uh, And I was very happy to accept the title. Uh, 
And do you know that in the last census, the most Christian town in Britain is Oldham? Now, there you are. Uh, and when I asked my friend, uh, friend in Oldham, how on earth have you become the most Christian town? Your church attendance doesn't seem to be sort of topping the, uh, the, the, the register, top register. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just that 80% of our people want to say we are not Muslims. That's all it meant. Christian was, they're registering their protest in a heavily Muslim area. So next time you go through Oldham, it is the most Christian there's a gentleman there from Rochdale, and they're, they're very opposite. To, he won't believe a word of it, my Rochdale friend, because they're great opposition, you know, Rochdale and Oldham. But that is what it is, the, the most Christian town. Well, of course, it means nothing. Why then were they called Christians first at Antioch? Because that was what they were talking about. And where was Antioch? Antioch was the third largest city of the world then. Rome was number one. Alexandria was number two. Antioch was number three. We're talking about a big city. It was known as an infamously wicked city. There was a nickname, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes. And Orontes was the river that flowed through Antioch. And the sewage was not the stuff out there, the, 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 the green, the environment disaster. It was the immorality, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes. And in that wicked city, a church grew. Now what's very interesting, if we look at this church and see its relevance to us today, we know nothing about the organization except from chapter 13 where they had these uh, leaders, these elders who sent out Barnabas and Saul. But we know nothing about how it was arranged. Always remember, the one thing you will not find in Scripture is denomination. You'll find the world church and you'll find the local church and you'll seek in vain for Methodism, Anglicanism, brethren or whatever. Thank God for that. For the church is bigger and smaller. So I don't know how they organized their church in Antioch, and I do not care. I have no idea how many churches were there. We shall never know. But we know three things about this church in Antioch, which became the first overseas missionary sending church in the Acts. Okay? The gospel had spread, but it hadn't gone overseas yet. And in Acts 13, it moves overseas. And it begins to move overseas. And please note, when Barnabas and Saul set out in chapter 13, they knew perhaps even less than Neil and Lucy know as to what's going to happen to them. There was real uncertainty for them, but they went overseas, the first overseas missionary sending church. And while there's much about the modern church that makes a retired clergyman like me get worried, there are some lovely things happening. The center of gravity is moving. Moving to the global south, where the Christian church, the Anglican church in Nigeria, has so many things to teach us. The life and the vigor. And they're sending out missionaries. They have bishops in America under their jurisdiction. And when, I, when we were in Korea some years ago, we found a little prayer meeting that met once a month to pray for the forgotten continent. That was Europe. I felt humbled. And the Koreans are now sending missionaries out all over the world. And so the center of gravity is moving. Now, all I want to know is what made the church at Antioch where they called themselves Christians first so important. Okay. It was a church which lived and learned and loved. You have my alliteration. It was a church which, le which lived, learned, and loved. Verses 19 to 21, here's the church which lived. How did it come to life? Well, who were the messengers? Verse 19, they were those who had been scattered by the persecution. Now, please note the drama. I do hope you love the drama of Scripture. 
Why were they persecuted? Because a man called Saul of Tarsus was going around trying to get rid of Christians. And so a persecution began and they got thrown out. And who at the end of the story comes to Antioch to teach the Christians? Saul of Tarsus, gloriously converted. That's, that's wonderful. You should be dramatically excited about that. That's glorious. And it's because of the persecution that they were sent out as ordinary Christian people. Those who have been scattered, travelled, telling the message only to Jews. The word says, speaking the word. Just speaking the word. Now, I know that Christianity is more than speaking the word. I know that Christianity we've been around tonight is to do with attitudes and all the rest. Of course it is. And the kind of people we are matters enormously. But we shall never spread the gospel without speaking the word. It may be more than speaking, but it is never less than speaking. They would never have known about Christ unless they had verbalized it, vocalized it. And that was the challenge of the ordinary Christians. They had to speak. Do you remember the early apostles? It says in the Acts of the Apostles, they said, we cannot but tell. I wish that were true of all of us. We cannot but tell. Ordinary Christians sent out, and please note, in the history of the church, it has often been the days of oppression and persecution that's waking the church up. And I'm still prayerfully anticipating it may happen yet again. It's more than just being, it is speaking. Last time I was in this pulpit, I think I, I spoke about this famous document that we retired clergymen get, the Retired Clergyman's Bulletin, that we get two or three times a year, uh, which I generally read uh, sort of superficially. On one occasion, we got a long uh, letter saying, one of the nice things about being retired, it's no longer what you do or what you say, but what you are. Now, I've always tried to work out, how can I be without saying or doing. I'm not quite sure how I, how I can be anything without saying or doing. Surely I express what I am by what I say, by what I do. I hope that's sensible to everybody. And these Christians didn't just go out to be Christians. They went out to speak. I remember preaching on this particular theme just before Billy Graham came to Sheffield. And we had a, a scheme going around the churches. And the title was, Is Your Church Worth Joining? bit rude, wasn't it? But that's what we called it. Is your church worth joining? And we went around and tried to encourage churches to waken up to what sort of church will we present to people? And we had a thing called Operation Andrew. I remember that well. Andrew, who all, only speaks three times uh, in Scripture, and he all, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. He brings his brother, he brings the Greeks, he brings the lad with the four, five loaves and a few fish, he brings them to Jesus. He was always going out bringing. And he became less important than Simon Peter. Every time Andrew's name is mentioned, he's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Even before Peter became a Christian, he was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. But you see, he was very happy to spread the news. They were ordinary Christians. And they went out, and please note that eventually in verse 20, they told the good news about the Lord Jesus to Greeks also. You can't stop if you want to talk about Jesus. You don't differentiate. You don't say, will that sort of person be right to receive it? They were all recipients. These were the messengers. What was the message? The message in verse 20 was they told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. We noticed three things about that. The verb. They proclaimed. They didn't give good advice telling people the kind of way they should live. 
They weren't just decent people living lives that would reflect something decent and honourable, which many people think the word Christian means. They told them good news. And it was good news about the Lord Jesus. Please note both words. Sometimes people get it wrong. Antioch was highly immoral. Antioch was highly religious. Now, you please don't, please don't think that religion and immorality never go together. In the history of mankind, religion more often goes with immorality than with morality. And when Richard Dawkins in his book on atheism complains about religion, that it's caused a great deal of trouble in the world, I go most of the way with him. Religion has. Religion does. And these religious people needed to hear about the Lord. The one who could take charge of their lives. With their cult religion, they were looking for some force to take charge of their lives. And they were looking for a Jesus, which means a saviour. Somebody who could deal with problems of the past and problems in themselves and problems of the future. So the message was clear. The messengers, the message, the miracle. What was the miracle? Well, it was a double miracle. The miracle was that Jews and Greeks both became Christians. They got a new name, they got a new bank account, and Jew and Gentile, the biggest divide of the known world then, was changed. Doesn't that really should excite you? In the world of today, with all its barriers, the one thing that matters, of course, we must show grace to Muslims. What a lovely thought that, Jew, that Christian and Muslim and Jew alike can find in Christ, in faith in Christ. And not without that, a great unity and a wonderful unity. What that could mean. For you see, there were Jews and Greeks both acknowledging Christ. But the miracle went further. Would you know, verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And you get the same phrase in verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Every verse word counts. Don't you want a great number? I still remember that day when I stood in a, in a church in India, William Carey Memorial Church, and William Carey's great words, expect great things for God, attempt great, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And as I stood there and preached to a, whole, a church full of Indian people, packed to the gunnels with young people, I thought, Carey died and never saw that. But he did expect great things. He did attempt great things. And he paid for it was with his life. And I was just, a long time later, seeing some of the fruit of it. Let's be big. Attempt great things. Of course small can be beautiful. People come to Christ one by one, whatever the size of church congregations, but we should attempt great things and a great number. What did they do? Two things. They believed. They turned. They can't believe if they don't hear. And when they hear and believe, they turn. Lovely phrase. That's the conversion word. Turning to Christ turning around from the way we lived before, turning from their old religions, turning from our empty religions, turning to Christ. The messengers, the message, the miracle. Church which lived. Secondly, the church which learned. Now, if I was preaching in one of my itinerant modes, I could tell my story about how I took four times to pass my driving test. But I've told it so often here that I would even hear the audible sigh from some of the congregation. Just let me say that if you want to ask somebody aged over 70 and looking utterly bored, ask them, they will tell you. 
how the story goes. Not now, please, not now, but later on. Just let me suffice to say, I did pass the fourth time. If anybody took longer than that, please see me afterwards. I'd be delighted to meet somebody who took five times to pass the driving test. It will give me great joy and encouragement. When, I, when in fact, I did finally pass, the chap who taught me to drive had retired. I took so long, he'd retired. So I wrote to him. I wrote to him to thank him for his kindness and perseverance. I got a letter back. Dear Padre, you always know a chap who never goes to church. He calls clergyman Padre. You always know. Dear Padre, he said, I have learned over the years that those who take the longest to learn to drive always make the best drivers. <laughs> Which is, as you know, a load of rubbish, but it's nice. It gives a feel of great comfort. And the other one, this, I tell the story, the other one, this is why I tell the story, is that when I was a rector in Edinburgh, my youth group used to pull my leg mercilessly that I still had my L plate up. And I said, I'm doing it purposely. I just want to be a visual aid to teach you, you see, that you're always L plates up when you're a Christian. That also was a load of rubbish, but it sounded good. But it's true, isn't it, that the L plate's always there. We're always learning. Now, how did the church at Antioch learn? This, this bothers me. This morning I preached at, at Matlock. Over lunch at Matlock, trying not to watch the West Indies doing better than they should be doing today at cricket, and it's the Lord's Day, so I shouldn't be watching it. Uh, uh, I, I was talking to them about Christians in sport, and we were discussing the fact that there's a prayer meeting at Portsmouth Football Club every week, uh, apparently enough footballs at Portsmouth for Christians, and is the fact that they didn't go down through, due to the fact they pray, who knows. So we were discussing all this, and we were sharing the, the problem, and it is a problem. Why is it we do hear about Christians in sport and Christians in the entertainment world, and some of them are great. But sometimes we expect too much of them, and sometimes we put them on pedestals they should never be on, and sometimes they're great disappointments. And talking to Graham Daniels some time ago from Christians in Sport, he said, the trouble is, most of them can't get a church on Sundays because of their sport, sadly. And many of them, therefore, get very little teaching. They are Christians, but there's very little input. They try their best to have groups outside of it. So if it's true for Christians in sport, it was true for these Antioch Christians. Great that they become Christians, but how are they going to go on? Please note two things about which church was learned. There was a word of exhortation, first of all, from dear Barnabas. Verse 22, news this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. Now, I don't know why they sent Barnabas. They were probably trying to make sure it was all right. It was kosher. It was a proper church. It would be very different from the church in, in Jerusalem. It would be a, a, a Gentile-dominated church, and they weren't quite sure about it, but they sent the right man. I only discovered this morning, opening my diary for the week, that tomorrow is St. Barnabas' Day. I couldn't have timed it better. And what a, what a lovely epitaph for Barnabas. Look at verse 24. If anybody ever dreamt of saying half of verse 24 about me, I should be delighted. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. What a testimony. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Interesting. A lot of people in the New Testament are filled with the Spirit. Here's a man who was full of the Spirit. And I submit that's rather different. Not just occasionally great moments filled with the Spirit, excitement. No, no, just full of the Spirit. Constantly. Steadily. And read the story of Barnabas and he's always leading people. He encouraged Saul of Tarsus when the rest of the church in Jerusalem thought he was a quizzling. He set the example at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles when he sold his property and gave to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And now he's going to encourage. Just spot. Verse 23. When he arrived, he saw. What did he see? 
Evidence of what? The grace of God. Now I submit to you that many a less good Christian would have got to Antioch, would have looked at what was going on in the church and they'd have said, it's not like this at home. Is this really okay? Should it be like this? I wish it were like I was used to in Jerusalem. No, he saw evidence of the grace of God. But he didn't therefore sit back and say, God's at work, it's okay. He exhorted them, verse 23, encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. You see, what happens when people come to faith is they need to be taught in the faith. And I would... I believe as I go around in my ministry, itinerant ministry, one of the jobs that my job is to try to teach the Bible. Now, I believe preaching is more than teaching the Bible. I'm slightly miffed if I'm told I'm going to teach the Bible. I think I do more when I'm preaching. There should be a sort of passion which makes the Bible relevant when you've taught it. But you must never do less than teach the Bible. And that's what happened. He taught them. He built them up. A word of exhortation. And then a year of edification. See what happened in verse 25? Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Do you know what happened to Saul? He became a Christian on the Damascus road. He went into Damascus and witnessed that and the one who had first persecuted was now preaching and they, were, they marveled. He then eventually, having been brought in a basket down the wall, having to escape by the skin of his teeth, went to Jerusalem. Wasn't accepted by most. They thought he was a quizzling. His old non-Christian friends hated him and eventually was shipped off again to save his life. And where did he go? Back to Tarsus. Back to where he belonged. Saul of Tarsus. Back home. To witness, to work, to think, to pray. And Barnabas thought, who shall I get to build up this church? Who shall I get to teach these young Christians enthusiastic but lacking knowledge of Jesus? Ah, Saul's the man. And he brought Saul and for a whole year they met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And that's when the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What a terribly important ministry that is. And particularly in our age when Bible knowledge is, is at its lowest ever for a long time, when many even committed Christians have very sparse knowledge of what the Bible really teaches, how desperately important that if a church is going to make a stand for God these days, we need a taught church. A word of exhortation. A year of edification. Church which lived. A church which learned. And finally a church which loved. You see that in two ways. First of all at the end of chapter 11. And by the way you've been very patient in this very hot night. Uh, it's good. I, do, I used to I say in the old days. Uh, if you were too hot please divest yourselves within the limits of decorum. But since I have no intention of taking my jacket off. I don't say that to you. I shall still preach the jacket but you're doing very well so keep patient there's only five minutes to go all is well and those who are wafting yourself I get mesmerized watching all these wafters going on it's a mesmerized speech a church which loved in giving and in going end of verse chapter 11 there was a severe famine early Christian suffering and this young church demonstrated it belonged by giving according to their ability every single one gave it is part of our privilege at Christ Church Fullwood to share our resources, not just with Neil and Lucy, but with many people in hospitality, in giving. I can remember when this church was extension was opened. We had many things happening that, during that week. And we had a, a 
kind of brains just one night and a, and a vicar from the other end of the city was there and uh, somebody asked him the question, what can we do here to help you in a more difficult situation? And he ummed the nod and said one or two pious things and he said, to be honest, give us some money. And that was a straight answer. And that was a right answer. That's what we could do to help him. He had great ideas. He had people who could carry out the ideas but he couldn't finance them. And so the giving is part of the mark of being people of God, of sharing in love with the wider work of the church of God throughout the world. Is this a church which loves in its giving? Are you a Christian who loves in your giving? Do you ever dare sit down and work out what you do do with your money? We often say, I do not know where my money has gone. Every Christian should know where his or her money has gone. And I trust that we show love by giving, but also by going. Just glance over to chapter 13, then I'm finished. In in page 1107, here's chapter 13. Here's what happens when they come back from Jerusalem, end of chapter 12. Then there comes this great moment, the first overseas missionary venture. Just notice some very important things. The most important thing is the whole church sent them off. They were involved. We've prayed for Neil and Lucy today, so we are Involved, And I know that they appreciate that many of us do get involved regularly with prayer for them. They're doing our work. They're out there as our representatives. But the intriguing thing to me is, whom did they send out from the church in Antioch? Not Simeon called Niger, not Lucius of Cyrene, not Manian, not some young Christian who'd been converted a few weeks. They're two best men. They took a risk. They sent out the best. I won't embarrass Neil and Lucy by suggesting that's what we've done. But I do want to say that it's a very important Christian principle. I was sitting over there as a member of the congregation when Christchurch Central Church went out. And I tell you, I'm not a kind of emotional guy. But I was very emotional that night. I felt some involvement, though it hadn't been my my thing, which Hugh Palmer's thing. But I, I... I just felt what a wonderful moment when we sent out these 50, often some of our best people, with great respect to all of us who remain, out they went to start a new church. That's right. I was always very humbled that when I was vicar here, you seemed to be happy enough to send me out on these various ventures abroad and in this country to take the good news. It seems to me a mark of a church that it sends out. And it's always a mark of a church that's alive that there's a constant going out. Not always as missionaries in the traditional sense of the word. Not always as ordained ministers in many parts of our land. But just out as Christians. I'm not very good at uh, geology and geography. But I am told that the Dead Sea is dead because everything flows into it and nothing flows out of it. I hope that's true. And it's certainly true spiritually that a church gets dead when things flow in and nothing flows out. And you actually can have a dead church that's full to capacity. No, we're not here. Of course we're not. But I do want to warn you that life and death is not a matter of numbers of people who turn up on a Sunday. Life and death is to do with the kind of people we are sent out into the world and I believe God wants to keep doing it. Just two final things. 
Last week we were not here. I, I'm, I'm very touched by the fact that lots of people who do pray for us. I, I got rebuked twice this week. You weren't in church last Sunday and your prayer notes didn't say you were anywhere else praying, preaching. Where were you? That's a cheeky thing to ask. Cause I, I'm not allowed to do anything on Sunday except preach or sit in the pulpit. No, I was very glad to be asked that question. Where I was, my wife and I were down with our daughter and her family. Our daughter, Catherine, becomes 50 this month. If everything made me feel ancient, to have a daughter of 50 has done it. Never mind, we shall survive. And we're going down, we had a family get-together. Twelve of us, the tacking, banting family got back together. And, and just coming back, having enjoyed a family occasion, I thought I was preparing this sermon. Our two kids now serving the Lord with their children in different ways. They owe, I hope, something, perhaps a lot, to their parental in, uh, inspiration. I hope that's right. But they owe a great deal to the life and the fellowship of this church. It was here that they really made a commitment. It was here that they got the vision of what they might do with their lives. And so we're eternally grateful. We are. That our children found the inspiration to go out. Now I know there are people who have children here and that's not been true yet. I hope it will be true eventually. But it's just a reminder to us that whatever our situation may be, the joy of a church which lives and learns that it will love and what are signs of loving it will Send people out. Now, I had never any doubt about what hymn I would choose for my last hymn. Will you please just glance at your notice sheet now before I pray? And this is a hymn by Frank Horton, who was a bishop. He was a bishop in the uh, Anglican Church overseas, a missionary overseas missionary fellowship. And I remember, it doesn't seem all that long since we called this a new hymn. Uh, so much new hymns recently. This was once a new hymn. The man's been dead over 30 years, but it was a new hymn all that long ago. And I often say when I choose this hymn at the end of a service like this, I want to suggest to you the last four, four lines of what I want to sing with new dedication. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thine errand send us, to labour, for thy sake. There were times when I used to think the great enemy of the Christian church was militant communism. You could argue that the greatest enemy of the church that is militant Islam or militant atheism. But neither of those things would be right. The greatest enemy of the Christian church progressing are the twin enemies of cowardice and lethargy. That is, the number of people who won't stand up and be counted of course we believe, but don't expect to say anything about it. There'd have been no church at Antioch if they'd been like that. And lethargy, we want a quiet life. When I retired, I got two cards saying the same thing. You've spent so many years looking after other people. Now is the time to look after yourself. With respect to anybody who sent it, you couldn't be more wrong seems to me we, we never, as Christians, spend our time looking after ourselves. In the process of serving others, we find joy ourselves. So when you get to those lines from cowardice defenders, from lethargy awake, well, it's a challenge to all of us. Neil and Lucy will have no time for cowardice and lethargy, but we all of us need to be sure that we too pray that God will send us on his errands, wherever it may be, to live and labour that this church may ever be like the church at Antioch. So if they hadn't thought of the name Christian and they met us, 
they'd invent it and say www.christians.forward.uk. No dot after that. Let's pray.